You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is episode 92. I'm your host, Victor Marks, and joining me is Daniel Aaron Dilger to discuss all things MacBook Pro. Hello from San Francisco. Yeah, so there was a big event today, wasn't there? Yeah, it was Apple's uh, Hello Again event, where um, they, it was interesting, they started off with Apple TV and then went to the Mac, which was the big news. So and no iPads. Talk- I, was, I was thinking they were going to talk about iPads, but they didn't. That's, that's, you know, there were a lot of people that uh, I read online that were waiting to see if there was anything at all to talk about iPads. And I guess that's because we had the iPad Pro 12-inch uh, announcement a little over a year ago. And Was it a full year ago already? Uh, well, the, well the, was, yeah, the 12-inch was last year. The 12-inch so was September a year ago. Yeah. They probably don't, I mean, they probably could do a refresh if they wanted to without uh, introducing a new one this year or without an event this year, but it doesn't look like they're even going to um, update them this year, Yeah, which is fine because they're probably selling mostly to companies. Mm. I mean, it's not so, necessarily fine that they're not updating it, but it's maybe they're, they're in the same bucket as the, the Mac Pro. The oh Mac dear, Canadian. I hope that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> probably not for as long, but... Now, well, let, let me first talk before we get into Apple TV and all of the MacBook Pro announcements. Let me talk a little bit about how we use our Macs. We we all use our Macs differently, and one feature that's common to all of them is that the audio of the Mac is the, the system's volume. You know, we saw in the announcement today that there's now a touch bar with a slider that you can multi-touch to slide the volume up and down. And and most of us feel pretty frequently the need for a little bit more volume when it comes to that system volume level. And there's an app that can help with that. It's called Boom 2. It's an audio enhancement app by Global Delight. And what it does is it calibrates itself to the Mac and then enhances its volume. And even the most feeble notes get amplified to the best of the hearing range, giving an immersive and crystal clear audio experience to the human ear. So if you also want to get immersed into an audio experience like never before, log on to boomformac.com. It's B-O-O-M-F-O-R-M-A-C.com. And the best part is, if you buy this app before November 30th, you can use the coupon code INSIDER, that's I-N-S-I-D-E-R, for a 30% discount. So don't keep your ears waiting. Log on to boomformac.com now. Use the coupon code INSIDER and get the app for only $10.50 American. Uh, and I wonder how that app's going to work with the new MacBook Pros, with the new speakers. That's going to be interesting. So first, talk to me about Apple TV. Do you have an Apple TV? I do. I've had several in the past, but um, I got the new Apple TV, and uh, they didn't they didn't come out with a new Apple TV. What they came out with is a new way to basically discover things. It, it's very similar. Right before the keynote, I, I feel smart for having typed this out, but um, and it's kind of obvious. We look at all the stuff they're doing with with uh, Apple Music, and they're really getting in figuring out how to um, how to sell music and how to present new music to people. So you you go into the into Apple Music and uh, it shows you what what's in your library, what the stuff you care about, and also it there's a discoverability angle where it says just for you, and it there's curated suggestions of things you may be interested in, that kind of thing. Um, so you know, my guess was yeah, they're going to do the same thing for TV and mov- movies eventually. What they did is really something that's kind of interesting. Um, it's it's a new app called TV, and it's kind of it looks like it's kind of going to be the new, basically the interface for uh, Apple TV in a sense. I mean, it's just an app, but there'll be a new system update coming out later this year for Apple TV. And it gives you a new app called TV that has a an interface that's sort of like Apple Music and also 
has some resemblance to uh, Apple News in that it presents, here's the stuff that you've subscribed to that you care about. Here's some new stuff that you know you can peruse kind of thing. But instead of aggregating other people's journalistic content or features or whatever kind of magazine content, they're mining all this content from apps on Apple TV already. So there's a whole bunch of uh, apps that there's both live streaming apps and um, there's basically cable apps that if you need a cable subscription to access their content. And there's also uh, paid apps. Like I guess it's HBO or HBO go. There's a couple different, there's, there's two. One, if you have cable, you use that It's HBO now. And then there's HBO go. I think is what the names are. Correct. But basically um, you can either subscribe right there and start using it or, um, whatever, but there's so many different apps for different channels that unless you know exactly what channel you're going to find something, there's a lot of times when you just want, uh, content, right? So in the past, past you'd, you'd hit the Siri microphone button on the remote and you'd say, find me everything related to, uh, oh gosh, what's a good movies from the eighties kind of thing is the example, right? Movies from the eighties or Clint Eastwood this or whatever. And it would show you everything in the iTunes store. It would show you everything in Hulu and everything in Netflix and anything else that it could index on your Apple TV that you've installed. And that was fine and well, but you, you had to search and then you had to to navigate over them to see the different sources and, and choose where you were going to go from. And now they're aggregating well, it, presenting it in an interface that yeah. you can it, – it's still there. It hasn't gone away. But in, instead of having to initiate with the microphone to find your things, you can just go to this TV app first – and anything that you've watched on Netflix, Hulu, HBO Go, and any of the other ones aggregate there for you. So you can continue watching or bin, continue binge watching or, or, or see what you've been doing in this one view as opposed to having to deal with going through all of the different portals. Yeah, so to an extent, it's kind of like you're, it's a, a store, but instead of shopping for apps, you're shopping for content that those apps are going to give you. And so if there's content in apps that you already have or that you already subscribe to or that you would like to subscribe to, it kind of presents you sort of a content-driven interface to what's available on Apple TV as opposed to saying, I want this app and I want this app and then I'm going to go to that app and, you know, work with each app separately. So it's kind of, yeah, it's just like a different, like an alternative way to look at content. So let me ask you if, I mean, Netflix and Hulu these guys put a lot of effort into making their experience be identical across devices. You, you get the same Netflix and the same Hulu interface on Apple TV as you do on Amazon Fire TV and Fire Stick, as you do on Roku, as you do on all of these different types of devices. Should they be worried or scared now that Apple has basically created a whole new front end to their service? I don't think it's a cause for being scared as much as they are protective. You know, Netflix they and Hulu and all these different companies – they already do their own, they're already trying to sell their own content. So they're trying to present you with things you may be interested in based on previous things you've watched, um, present, uh, promoting their own proprietary content that you can only find on their channel. So Apple's offering an alternative thing for users to take advantage of. Um, in some cases, it's going to draw attention to their content. But I think there's also going to be some resistance. Uh, there's some speculation that Netflix may not be in on this from the beginning, this TV app, because they would could possibly be concerned, um, A, about sharing the spotlight with anybody else, but B, also, they don't necessarily want to share everything that they know. And this sort of social graph is th- things we've already seen in other areas. For example, Facebook. 
Facebook, if if you remember, uh, was very resistant to making an iPad app for a long time, and they were fighting with Apple, and you know that was the whole thing with Ping. You know, Apple was trying to integrate iTunes with Facebook, and Facebook just pulled the rug out from under them, and so there's this fighting back and forth. And it wasn't so much that Facebook was afraid that Apple was going to kill their stuff, is that they just didn't want to share anything. And at the same time, they also wanted everyone else's data. So they wanted a lot of data that Apple wasn't going to give them. So there's some contention between all these different content providers for uh, controlling the data on their users and the way that they present their data and, and how they share that data with anyone else. And in general, they don't really want to share that data. So I think it will, it will be most beneficial for other kinds of sites and you know basically anyone who's putting uh content up there that people want to see there's going to be a lot of sites that that um would volunteer to put their stuff together so that apple tv is uh promoting what you can buy from them or subscribe from them for so i don't think it's so much a, a fear as it as there is a you know concern by all these companies of who's in control of the data all right I'm looking forward to getting a chance to try this. I'm hopeful that these companies aren't so upset by being um, aggregated like this that they pull out. Because I, I think having this kind of portal, having this entry point into all of your viewing is really beneficial. Especially one of my chief complaints with Hulu a year ago, two years ago, was that it was very hard to see when there was a new episode that you hadn't seen or how many episodes you hadn't seen. And they since updated the interface to let you know that. But if if we're uh, in, in a world where TV doesn't kind of show you that, where the TV app doesn't have that for you, that, that makes it less useful. Currently, it looks like it's going to be great. It looks like it's very useful. And as long as Hulu and Netflix don't try and kill it. The other cool thing about the TV app on Apple TV is that there's also going to be a iOS version of the app so that on your iPad or your iPhone, you can it's all cloud synced together, like what episodes you watch and what, where you're at in an episode. So you can be watching something at home and you know, you're on your commute and you can pick up where you left off. And it knows what episode you're on or it knows even if you're in the middle of an episode. So that's really clever. And that's also kind of a value add to these companies that may be on the, the edge of, you know, do we, do we want to partner with Apple on this? And, and again, not just Facebook is the only, it's not the only example of uh, companies that are concerned about data, but also, you know, if you think about the telephone companies with the iPhone and there's a lot of resistance of Verizon, you know, spent for several years being resistant to the iPhone because they didn't want to give Apple so much control over the experience. And similar things have happened with uh, the record labels and the um, TV studios and movie studios and everything. There was kind of a fight every time to get content into iTunes. And eventually I think, you know, overall there's, Apple has to kind of prove that they can do it, but once they do, then there's, you know, eventually there's support that grows behind that. So it may take some time, but I think it's going to work out. All right. Let's talk MacBook Pros. For, first of all, what is the current lineup for Macs that are going to be sold? Let's let's cover that. You mean the new lineup? The the new lineup from the very most affordable to the very most expensive. So they're they're keeping an air. And the thing with the Air was, uh, it was originally intended to be a light, thin notebook. And uh, was it last year when they came out with the Mac, the Retina MacBook? It was kind of a reinvention of the Air, but it was a much, it was it was a high-end premium device that it had a Retina display and the Force Touch uh, trackpad and, and other features that kind of priced it out of the range of the Air. So Apple kept the Air around. So uh, at this point, they're now selling. Um, 
just one model of the air. They got rid of the smallest one, the 11. I think they're still selling it to um, education. Education, yeah. But it's it's not marketed to... I think at some point you're just going to have too many models. So what they did is, I believe it's a 13-inch air, and then there's two versions of the 13-inch MacBook Pro, one of which has the standard uh, F function so, keys. So there's a, a there's a 13-inch MacBook Air that will sell for $1,000. There's a 12-inch MacBook, which is the Retina display. There's the the 13-inch MacBook Pro that you just named, which has the, the real function row keys, right? Right, the physical keys. And, and then what else is there? And then there's... Uh, the 13-inch and 15-inch version of the MacBook Pro that have uh, the full function keys are, are the they call the Touch Bar, which is a display that's multi-touch um, above the top of the keyboard that is context and app uh, dynamic. So it presents functions that you would have right in, in, in reach of your fingers on the keyboard. And what's interesting about this thing, and this is not a total secret. I mean, we saw pictures of it leaked beforehand. Uh, so we kind of knew in general what was coming. Several years ago, I think it was like 2009, I, I had this speculative idea that I put on roughly drafted about why don't they replace the trackpad with basically an iOS screen. And some people were saying, oh, why would that even make sense? And in my mind, I was thinking, if you have two screens, and, and it's kind of like an iPhone placed on the keyboard, that you yeah. have this kind of premium feature that you could uh, edit things with. And one of the drawbacks of that is that your hand is kind of covering the screen. And if you're looking primarily at the display, uh, you'd have to move your hand to see what was on the screen, um, which is fine on an iPad or an iPhone, but it um, might not be the best way to do it on, on a computer. Uh, there's been a couple different w- attempts at people to uh, figure out how to sort of bridge the gap between multi-touch devices and conventional notebooks. And of course, Microsoft uh, has really pushed for the last several versions of Windows to make the the screen touchscreen. So you can type on the keyboard and then you can reach up and touch the screen. And Apple's been very resistant to this. And the primary reason is that you're, you're, it's fatiguing to touch the screen. And it's also your screen gets dirty. Yeah, you get grow arms. Yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's something that seems to be natural. But when you start using it, I don't see... There's some people that do like it on Windows, apparently. Uh, but in general, we haven't seen like a huge adoption. It hasn't been like, you know, when the iPhone came out and everybody just wanted to have it. Or um, there's been a, a series of things that have come out and people just immediately, that's the new way to do things. And touchscreens have not really done that. They make the computer more expensive and they introduce other problems for it. I mean, it, it's a more expensive, thicker, uh, complicated display. It's something new, new to go wrong on the display. Uh, and it also limits what can happen on the computer going forward. With the interesting thing about the the touch, um, the new what they're calling the touch bar, is that it lets you kind of coordinate uh, the touchpad, which is you're selecting and moving things around with your finger or doing some gestures, with the idea of specific buttons that pop up uh, based on what you're doing. So it kind of comes, it, it kind of reminds us of this whole idea of, you know, when Steve Jobs talked about, it was kind of key to what made Apple's stuff interesting with the Macintosh and then later with the um, the iPhone in particular and the iPad, is that you have a bitmap display, you can show all kinds of things on it. So if you have a little screen on the top of your keyboard, instead of having, you know, a dozen different F keys, you can have a strip that changes depending on what you need it for. So instead of just being programmable buttons, 
you can have sliders and various different other kinds of um, UI events that when you're working on, particularly with pro apps, they showed a whole bunch of different applications of this. But when you're working with things like, for example, GarageBand or, or Final Cut Pro, the fact that when you're working with media, you can select and uh, hit buttons that would normally be sort of hidden in the user interface on the screen. Apple's always kind of worked to kind of um, make controls available. But when you have every button of everything you can possibly do on the screen all at once, it's, it's overload. It's just kind of too much. You get the Microsoft ribbon problem. Yeah, so there's either too many buttons on a window that's crowding out your content, or you have uh, the, the Mac menu bar across the top. There's a whole bunch of stuff hidden in these different menus that you have to kind of know where to look for them. Yeah. And the, the cool thing about the touch bar is that it can change depending on what you're doing, and you can take your document full screen, whether it's a they demonstrate with using with Photoshop or you know if you're watching a, a video or anything. And suddenly the controls, instead of being on top of your content, are like right in the display or right in the keyboard that you can interact with. So that's one of the you know kind of clever aspects of it is that it's always available. It's kind of like button bars that are off the screen, but it's also contextual and dynamic depending on what you're doing. Yeah. In, in 2007, in January, I was sitting in Mel's diner about two nights before the iPhone was announced, and I was talking with someone on the Safari team, and he told me, he said, I can't tell you anything at all about what will or won't be announced, but what I will say is that when you have a touchscreen as the whole interface, instead of a physical keyboard like a BlackBerry or a Nokia at the time, um, that the beauty of that is that you can change the keyboard to be relevant for whatever fields are on the screen. You get to change it to have an at symbol and a and a dot com for the end of a domain. You can change it to be a number pad when you need it. And, and what we're seeing is the evolution of that applied to the Mac. Yeah, so, and and not just uh, bringing that to the Mac, but also the the newer kind of idea of quick type, where you're typing and there's a word and you can just finish it by typing the, hitting the suggested word. Oh, uh, the quick type suggestions. Yeah. And then there's other other things depending on like what you're actually doing. Uh, for example, if you're in Safari, you don't need a whole bunch of editing controls, but it may be useful to have sites you normally visit or all the uh, various tabs you have open so you can like quickly push between them. So it seems like it's going to be a there's is is exposing a lot of complexity in a, in a simplified way, but um, that's a lot of extra information that's always there. So it'll be interesting to see what it's like to work on that on a regular basis. Yeah. So the pricing for these machines, the 13-inch the with physical function row buttons is $1,499. The 15-inch with the touch bar is $1,799. And no, that's the 13-inch with, with touch bar. The 15-inch with touch bar is $2,399. So can, can I ask you to – I'm going to state some user complaints – some early user complaints and ask you to address them for me. Okay. Um, one complaint is that they made these machines unaffordable, that the cheapest 15 inversion is, uh, is over $2,000 with, with, uh, without the Apple care, without any additions, without any of the upgrades to it. And that it, it comes with 16 gig of Ram and 256 gig SSD and and not a great video card. So it, it feels like a lot of money for an okay at best computer. What do you think of that? that? Um, well, on one level, they're not... It's kind of typical for Apple when they come out with a new technology, <clears throat> whether it's Touch ID or 
any of the kind of new things that they've introduced into a, I have to cough. <coughs> when they introduce a new technology, they typically do it at the high end. So when they came out with Touch ID, they put it on the, the most expensive iPhone. And the other iPhones that were available, they were also selling the, the 5C and they were selling the 4S or whatever still. They didn't get Touch ID. That was used as a way to get people to upgrade to the, the latest, most expensive thing. So, of course, with the Touch Bar, <clears throat> it's also um, reserved for the, high, most, the more high-end model. And if you look at the difference in price... The 13 with it, without it, the difference in price is uh, $300. It's not just the the touch bar that, that increases the price, though, because there's other differences within that. It The, um, <clears throat> the lower-end MacBook Pro, without the touch bar, also uses slower memory and the, the, the bus and everything, and it supplies two Thunderbolt 3 ports as opposed to four. So, I mean, there's there's a variety of uh, ways that they're trying to trim the cost down. But the new machines are obviously trying to be high-end. Um, in terms of, like, should they be more high-end? Should they be... <clears throat> is that your question? Should they have... It, it just seems like what this person is suggesting is that it's, a, uh, it's, it's not a fantastic uh, price-for-value ratio, that the the low ssd storage and the middling video card for the 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 high price doesn't feel right compared to cuz the the ssds on our 256 512 i mean are you is somebody yeah, imagining so, that it's going to have a terabyte ssd in it for no but they're imagining that they'll fill a 256 rather rapidly right oh, okay <clears throat> yes i mean ssd is is a um more expensive way to do storage I think the what this is really focusing on, and it's kind of interesting that Apple started out with the MacBook Pros, they're fairly thick, and that was used to deliver higher performance. And they're shrinking that down. So they are making a, an intentional trade-off to make it lighter and thinner, or at least thinner, more compact. <clears throat> because, you know, they sell millions of these. And so they know what gets people to buy things and what doesn't. So I don't think they're they're just like throwing darts at a board to come up with how they're designing the products. I think they're aware of what sells, and clearly uh, thinness does have a impact on what people whether people will pay extra for it. Mm-hmm. It's something that's light and thin. I mean, portability, especially in a notebook, is kind of paramount. Yes. So having having a lighter closure does have some trade offs to come with it, and. Um, if you're comparing it to like a Windows machine, I haven't looked at Windows pricing exhaustively, but I do know that there's a lot of options for lower price devices. And a lot of times they make a different set of trade-offs. Um, the super cheap things like, you know, Chromebooks, they're what, $200? But they make extreme compromises because they're basically a web browser running on Linux. It's not trying to be like a pro device. So, um, it's kind of hard for me to to give like a full a full accounting right. of I, I, all I think, you know, general, if we, but yeah. If we look at what the pricing was before this announcement and and what you got, it, it it seems it feels like, and maybe this is incorrect, but it feels like perhaps the previous lineup at the previous price points were a little more affordable, and and now that they're um, they're more difficult proposition. I think it'd be interesting to, to you know, take. There's, there's still to look at, there's still a Mac at every price point within the spectrum, but but that the, uh, the the MacBook Pros have moved up a little bit. 
yeah, I think they're they're establishing that you know these these new ones with the the touch bar. I think they're hoping that's going to sell uh, higher end users because there is there is a core value. I mean, for a casual user, it's sort of a novelty. But for somebody who's doing Final Cut or, or doing Photoshop all day long, being able to rapidly do edits using that technology, that's that's a value to people who don't really care whether they're spending $300 one time extra to be yeah. having a more powerful computer for the next two or three years that they can get right. a lot more done with. So I think from that, you know, if you're selling to a pro user, you want something to be... Uh, more pro in terms of storage. I mean, one of the, the main features of this is that there's four Thunderbolt parts. So you can hook two raids up to it and have an enormous amount of storage. So I, I don't know what you're putting on your SSD on, on the um, machine itself, but if you're working mm-hmm. on pro stuff, you're working on video or anything that takes a lot of space. Yeah. That's something that you put on a, a device and you plug into it and you work from it. Um, yeah. And also having the ability on the 15s to plug in two 5K displays, that's that's hasn't been done before with a single cable solution on a computer because Thunderbolt 3 is brand new. The ability to, to drive a 5K display on across one cable is an entirely new thing, and this has two of them. Uh, the 13, I believe, drives one uh, 5K display. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you have basically an editing workstation there that you can fold up and take home and use as a computer. There's no question the 15-inch is is more than capable. Um, do you think that it replaces the Mac Pro? Well, I mean, no. In terms of it has, it has it? a basic... Um, it doesn't it doesn't even have a discrete GPU, does it? Isn't it Iris Graphics? Uh, the new 15-inch with Touch Bar is an AMD Radeon. Oh, right. As, um, yeah, Radeon Pro. 460. I don't know how that compares to um, what is existing in the Mac Pro. I, I think they could probably have a Mac Pro that was much faster than that. And it's kind of surprising at this point, it's kind of a little bit beyond surprising that the Mac Pro is not being updated in any fashion for going on, what, three years now? Something like that? Yeah. Um, but if you look at the numbers of computers that Apple's selling and the number of them that are notebooks as opposed to desktops, and the number of those desktops that are Mac Pros, I think that's a very small number. So I think Apple designed this thing and then realized there's nobody that really wants to buy this, apart from a very small group of people, who many of them are going to be more interested in a notebook. So I think this does compete against it. I mean, obviously, if you have a, a cylinder computer that has two processors that can operate at full tilt plugged into the wall, that's always going to be more powerful than a notebook. But when you have a notebook that has delivers features that you can't, uh, you can't, the, the portability of a notebook is so useful because even people who work on video are frequently mobile as well. And, you know, the fact that you can take that, you know, close it up, unplug it and take it with you. That's, that's such a feature for so many people that I think it kind of comes down to, what should we put our efforts into? And if Apple was more like HP, they would they would have you know a dozen different notebooks and a dozen different um, towers and all kinds of different configurations. But Apple, even though it's so so big as a company, is still focused on selling vast numbers of a limited number of actual different configurations. And so that's 
you know, to look at that, it's easy to criticize something, but to look at it and say, Apple is much more successful than every other PC maker that has ever existed in the history of the world. And they're the only company that's selling tablets of any value. I mean, they're, they're by far selling the most tablets and they're, they're the only one making any money on it. There, there, there really isn't a tablet market as much as there is an iPad market. Right. I mean, that's, that's another way of saying the same thing. And then also for notebook computers and just computers in general, Apple is something like 80% of the computers over $1,000. You know, it's just incredible. They have all of the high end. And so to look at that and say, oh, Apple's doing the wrong thing by not making, you know, lower end computers for, you know, they can sell to a lot of people. I think that's something that you have to walk back and say, wait a minute, they're winning, you know. It's like looking at somebody who wins right. the Super Bowl every year and saying, well, you know, what they should be doing is running the ball more and they should be like throwing it up in the air more and they should be doing this. And, this. and it's like, they're winning. Maybe you should yeah. like look at so, why they're winning and other teams could copy what they're doing. You know, like Microsoft I, I, is working really hard to copy Apple right now, obviously. And the reason that they're doing that is because Microsoft is really, really fully aware that they're not able to sell stuff their own way. And they're not able to sell stuff as being this licensee of software on other people's PCs. And Google's finding out the same thing. Google is, everyone's patting Google on the back for having, you know, widely distributed Android. It hasn't done Google very much. What is Google doing now? They're making things that look exactly like the iPhone. They're selling it exactly like the iPhone. And they're putting proprietary software on their own thing. They're not making this open platform for everybody. That everybody was, like, congratulating and, you know, saying this is well, a they're brilliant They're empowering Samsung is what they're doing. Well, they're not really powering they're, Samsung. They're Samsung Google. is using their software for free. They're not Google. Yeah, they're, not yes, free. and they're tired of having everyone associate their software with Samsung. Oh, right. they, they want to be associated with it, too. Yeah, well, they're, they're also wanting to make money. If I, yes. If I had to guess, the person that I was bringing up their complaints for was really being self-interested, right? It used to be that you could get into a Mac for 500 bucks with a Mac Mini, and you could get a, a new MacBook Pro for around 1299 and and those days have gone and the prices have shifted and that's really what the complaint is is that it's it's expensive is really it and i agree with you it's it's clearly it's working for apple it just doesn't work for this particular user well i mean the the macbook weren't the macbook pros always kind of in the range of like if you get to the high end it was always kind of like pushing towards 2000 you could you could find you a could basic one i mean there, there was like the basic macbook yeah, yeah. that was you know kind of hovering around a thousand dollars when that first came out and that was a you know fat machine that was you know, pretty rugged and, and worked for a lot of people. And they're not selling that kind of machine now. They're selling lighter, thinner machines. But those are still, I mean, the, what is it? The low end air is kind of in that same price and it's much lighter. It's much faster, obviously. It's a thousand, right? Yeah. Now. yeah. So you don't get like so the high end for that price, what, but. It, it, let's move past this. What is the takeaway for people who didn't see the event? What, what should they know? For the new Macs? Yes. So, the, um, Apple's direction for notebooks is to be lighter and thinner. And these machines are powerful, but they're not primarily focused on being just powerful, as we've seen kind of in the past. I mean, uh, for a while, Apple was kind of speed bumping their MacBooks, and it was kind of the same design every year, but they was just getting a little bit faster processor and a little bit faster RAM and things like that. Now we're still seeing, they're still using like faster processor, and then they have a faster um, bus and faster RAM and things like that. But one of the big focuses here is being more um, productive with this uh, touch, bar. touch bar and being differentiated from other computers in a way that's you know obvious. You can look at it and be like, oh, yeah, you have that thing that does this. And so it'll be interesting to see whether this really um, 
the kind of appeal that it has for regular people outside of maybe somebody who's in a very specialized task where they can use it. But because um, I haven't used it extensively to do a lot of work, but uh, it looks like it'll be something. Were, that, were you were you able to go to the demo table? Yeah. Did you get to try it? Yeah. So it, it's it's just hard it? flat surface. So it, it's very much like you know it's kind of like a strip of iPad across the top of the screen. Um, it's on the it's like on the level of the of a depressed key. So it doesn't like bump up from the surface the way the top of a key would. So um, yeah, like the the person demonstrated it from Adobe kind of made the comment that it was it felt like playing an instrument almost because you're you're working with this slider across the top while you're also running your hands around the uh, trackpad and all the while you're kind of looking primarily at the screen. And then also there's there's now Touch ID built into the top corner of it. It's not part of the touch bar. It's on the edge of the touch bar. So it doesn't actually light up or anything, but it's there for doing And they've said that that's going to work with uh, online payments like uh, checking out from Etsy, for example. Yeah, so they introduced... It's kind of interesting how Apple introduces things without showing a roadmap. So it's just kind of like, you know, like, hey, guess what? It's like when you're playing a video game and some of the map is revealed and then some more of the map is revealed and you're like, oh, that's why you did that to, to go here to go there. Uh, so when they first did Apple Pay on the web, and then you authenticate it with your phone, the question was immediately like, "Oh, okay, I guess that makes sense." You know, because your phone is already, you know, set up, and the phone and computer can talk to each other and can authenticate for you. But having it on the on the machine is like, you know, slightly more convenient, I guess. But also, you can now have multiple people each account on the on a Mac is associated with different fingerprints, so that as Phil Schiller just uh, demonstrated during the presentation. You go up with somebody else logged in, you you touch ID, and it does fast user switching to log in the other person. Um, so that's a that's a clever, useful thing that's going to be of interest to you know business and potentially education. Uh, and then also, it sort of could be like a harbinger for how multi user stuff is going to be set up in the future on iOS as mobile devices get more and more powerful to where you could actually handle having multiple users of stuff on your on the same device. But right now it makes the most sense on a Mac, so that's where it's at. Yeah, and there's there've been rumors for years about multi-user iPads and they've never panned out. It it definitely makes the most sense on a Mac, I think. Yeah, I mean if, if you think about what happens when you log in and out on a on a Mac to do the same thing on an iPad, it requires a lot of work. It's kind of like the same thing when people look at tablets and they're like, "Oh, when do we get, you know, multiple overlapping windows?" in a dock and things like that. And it's like, well, you know, that was good in the eighties when we put it on a computer desktop, but may not be the best thing to have going forward on a note on a tablet. But you know, things, things change and people's sophistication kind of changes along an arc. And we see sometimes things are become possible due, due to uh, technological advances. But right now the iPads are, I mean, the benefit to an iPad isn't just that it's, incredibly fast and has a lot of latent processing power and storage is sitting there empty or idle. It's that it's kind of using everything it's got to feel like a computer, but it's actually a pretty simple um, tablet with limited resources. So you got to, you have to be um, reasonable what you expect out of it. Really quickly, let's cover what the ports are on the new MacBook pros. They are, you get, they look like USB-C. It's it's the same physical port as USB C and it and it works as USB, but they're Thunderbolt. 
which means it has um, what is the name of the display technology? Uh, DisplayPort. Yeah, DisplayPort. <clears throat> so DisplayPort, um, it Thunderbolt is basically display DisplayPort signaling combined with uh, it, it's basically like a, a Express card, PCI Express. Is that right? Or PCIe? Yes. Am I saying that right? Mm. It's basically like a PCI it's, uh, it's card PCI that, Express. It, it, that is exposing, yeah, it's exposing the um, bus of the computer. So it's a very general purpose thing that you can plug anything into. You can plug in a RAID card. You can plug in something that runs a display. Uh, you can plug in USB peripherals. And you can also have a display like the LG uh, 5K displays that they were showing. It plugs in with one cable. That cable not only does runs a display, but it also sends power to the computer to charge it. Plus, you can plug in all your, you know, keyboard peripherals, whatever storage devices into the USB on the machine, on the monitor, and that's all connected to the computer as well. So it's a very, very versatile port. It's like one of the most versatile ports we've ever seen because it does high-speed yeah, data, it does low-speed data, it does power, it does, every, you know, graphics and video, everything. Pretty much. And you, so the, the MacBook Pros, the 13-inch uh, with touch bar and the 15-inch with touch bar, they come with four of these Thunderbolt ports, Thunderbolt 3 ports that look like USB-C ports. So you can charge your laptop from any one of those four ports. Right. Either on the left or on the right side of the computer. And what's the other port on these machines, Dan? It has a headphone jack. Ah, oh, it has a headphone jack. Because there's no reason to take the headphone jack off. So what am I going to do with these lightning headphones that came in the iPhone 7 box? Use them with your iPhone 7. <laughs> Thank you. Is there any reason to be upset that the SD card slot is gone? Well, if you have an SD card that you plug into your computer a lot, um, the last time I used SD, well, so I use SD card slots for, you can plug them into a drone or another camera like that. But increasingly, yeah. uh, you can do that wirelessly. Uh, with some with some cameras, it's not really practical. It's like more handier just to pop the card out. But uh, most of the picture taking that we, we do today is done on your phone. And it's either wirelessly uploaded or you plug in you know, the serial cable and do it over lightning. So, I mean, there are, there are people that are going to keep continue to need to use SD cards. And so that would require a, some sort of external thing. My, my last question is which one are you going to get? Which one do you recommend our listeners get? Well, I mean, it depends on what your things are. Um, it's for me, it's always been kind of a tie up between having a nicer, bigger screen and the convenience of, being light and thin and with these machines the the 15 is actually very light and it's not much bigger than this, the display um and then you have if you have a lot of things you're going to connect if you if you're working with a lot of storage if you're working with multiple displays the 15 is kind of the obvious choice because the 13 has two two ports right or is that is it just the lower uh, end one i think the function row one though the one with the physical function keys gets the two yeah, ports two. i think the 13 inch with the touch bar gets four ports i'm not i might be mistaken on that yeah so that's that's a lot of ports and that's it's you know they can do that with the new usb type c connector that thunderport the thunderbolt 3 uses because it's so small you know with uh i have a 17 inch macbook pro from a long time ago and i think it has three usb ports on one side and it takes up you know kind of a considerable amount of space for those three tracks. So having two on each side of the machine is a really handy situation. So it's, it's a real toss-up between the 13 and the 15, uh, the, the two higher-end versions, because the 13 has all those ports. It's not reduced 
ports except for the extreme low end. And the 15 is, you know, it's, it's nice to have a big display. So I'll have to go to the store and play with a little bit more. Aha. All right. Uh, parting thought for us. Anything else we should know? Well, um, it'll be interesting to see what novel things people do with this uh, touch bar. Um, I mean, you could have kind of interesting games. There's there's a lot of games that have sort of a UI that just keeps going on and on as you play the game and it gets more and more complicated. So having like all kinds of buttons that depend on context, uh, that's, that's a really cool idea. And also just having sort of desk accessory type things where you can touch. I don't know what the... I suppose it's just the same as an iPad as far as like how small of controls you have to be. I, I started looking at the human interface guidelines that Apple drew up for for the touch bar specifically. Um, I, I just started looking at it. So I'm always interested in, in that kind of thing because they put so much effort into thinking like, how, how should this be done? You know, it's not just like, let's not just be like Google and say, here's, here's a wide open idea. Everybody run with it. Uh, but they really figure out like, what should we do? You know, how sh- how should this work? And give people a framework for using it. And then developers, you know, on top of Apple's human interface guidelines, have frequently introduced a lot of novel ideas that um, Apple didn't really think of on its own. But it builds on top of that, and so it contributes toward progress. Cool. Well, we're going to take the week, read all the articles on AppleInsider.com, and uh, we'll be back next week with more about these new machines. Dan, thank you for joining us. Where can people find you on the internet? I'm running for Apple Insider, and then, of course, on on Twitter, uh, Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N, and the same on Instagram. And, and then we're also doing uh, Instagram, uh, Apple Insider underscore official. You can follow us there. Excellent. Well, we'll be back next week with more all about this. And thank you, Dan, so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>